Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right. I'm excited about this one. I'm here with Fred Schinkelberg. Now, if you don't know who Fred is, I don't know where you've been living. So Fred runs extendoreliability.com and is super active in the reliability. Fred, first off, how are you doing today? Hey, pretty good, Rob. I'm glad. Thanks for the intro there. I, I, I hope people know about us and, and the site. That That's a, a nice uh, uh, gesture. <laughs> so I hope that works. No, I'm, I mean, I, I think I came across you. It, it's got to be over five years ago, but uh, like you're pretty, you seem to be very active in the, in the reliability space. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, it's part of responding to questions I get all the time. And even 20 years ago when I was working at Hewlett Packard, people would say, so what's a good conference to go to, or where do I find a good book on XYZ? Or, um, I'm looking to learn something about fill in the blank. And so I've just, have been in a regular habit of answering those questions. And then when you start seeing patterns and you answer the same question over and over again, I decided, well, let's put it online and make it available. And then between LinkedIn and other social media and our website, uh, we've also attracted a a pile of like-minded other authors and content contributors, yourself included here with this, uh, your, your podcast is to, improve the art of what we do right the the if we can learn from each other um that's all good and um to use that old the analogy is all ships rise with the tide if we all do a better job there'll be more demand for what we do and so it's all good yeah and like a couple articles that or i guess pages on your website right so you have the reliability fm or you know your podcast page which has I think now you're up to f- at least five or six different podcasts. And then you also have like a book list and you also have a list of universities that you can take, you know, courses at to learn reliability. That's right. It's, you know, it's, I was surprised I, when I was first asked that question years ago about where should I go to school to get my degree in reliability engineering? I only really knew of University of Arizona and University of Maryland. And with some little digging and asking folks, there's probably 15 or 20 different programs out there. 
Um, University of Tennessee is it got a great program aimed more at asset management and the maintenance reliability type aspects. Uh, but each one has their own focus. And, and that's, yeah, the resources tab that we got on the site lists. I think I did a, a top 10 list of 10 different types of reliability things, whether books or blogs or um, uh, universities, I think conferences, there's a whole list of them there. That's been a pretty popular page um, overall because people are, you can go to Google anything, right? But between the ads that are on there and, and SEO stuff, you have to dig pretty deep to find the one that matches what you're looking for. And so we're a, a big effort is to try to coalesce what's out there and make it a one place you can go to and find what you need make that easier. So we're, we're providing that editorial and it's curating, I think is the right word for it, uh, to help people find what they need. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely a good page. And, you know, if, if you guys are looking for, like, if the listeners are looking for more of that information, um, ascendoreliability.com, and you can also sign up for the email list and get an email. It's every Sunday and you'll, you'll hear, or you'll see, you know, what new podcasts are out or any webinars coming up or any new articles out. So that's a pretty good resource as well. Yeah, we we realize that there's so much material being added to the site every week so that the weekly update keeps you current. And I hear back all the time from people saying, uh, you know, I, I look for that and it gives me the time to do some professional reading. I look ahead to what webinars are coming up and I do my, you know, plan for professional development there. Um, and it's a good reminder and awareness of, of all the variety of stuff that's available. It, so it's a, it's a, it's a fun newsletter to put out and then we try to keep it current and well, we have to, cause it's a weekly <laughs> it's on what's new. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's great. Now, I guess, Fred, you know, before we get into the nuts and bolts here, um, so you also host a podcast yourself called Speaking of Reliability, and you're a lecturer at University of Maryland in their reliability program, as well as, you know, you host Ascendo Reliability and you're a consultant. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Like, how'd you get started in reliability and you know, like give us a little bit about your podcast and about what you teach at University of Maryland. Like many reliability engineers, um, it wasn't my plan. Uh, it wasn't the idea that I was going to grow up to be a reliability engineer. And there are people that do that. And I applaud them that they have that foresight, that that's what they want to do. Like many people, though, my boss walked into my office and said, hey, can you tell us, figure out how long this product's going to last? Uh, we have a customer that wants to know if it'll last 20 years in this particular environment. And I was like, what? <laughs> How do I do that? And um, some quick, you know, ch uh, check in with the library and asking a questions with folks. And, and I got a hold of a book by Wayne Nelson that was on accelerated testing and created a test and an evaluation and, and was able to demonstrate or show or prove uh, this product would last uh, 20 plus years with a very low failure rate. And um, that was fun. And so where I was working at Raychem at the time, there was a lot of emphasis on using statistics, using data, doing experiments. So I got to learn 
a lot. And I was encouraged to learn more and more about the reliability stuff. And so it was something I could do. I enjoyed doing, and it made a difference in the organization. I mean, they directly attributed the the sale of this product. Uh, it was to the Italian government in making the roads. They were putting this cable, this heating cable in bridges in the Italian Alps in order to prevent the bridges from freezing over. Uh, and you, I'm sure you, you've seen them, Rob, is, you know, bridges freeze first or black ice on bridges and things like that is, is a common hazard in colder areas. And so they built it, these cables into their bridges and now the bridges are dry and the rest of the roads covered in ice. <laughs> so it's, and it's, that's been 20 plus years. And, and my last trip to Italy in the winter, like, ah, they're still working. So got some evidence that it actually six months of testing actually proved that, that what we thought would work did. And so that, that's been rewarding. Uh, but more near term is that it's just an ongoing process of, being able to provide information and critical insights, both into the design process, into the assembly process, manufacturing process, and with our vendors and to our customers. And so you get to see the broad spectrum of the business and you can make a difference. And so a handful of different jobs led me into places that I got to exercise that. At, at Hewlett Packard, my boss asked me, so what's the state of reliability engineering in the company? And HP is, at the time, was we called it 50 loosely affiliated feudal baronies. Um, there were 50 different product lines that ran pretty much like their own businesses. And so I'd call them up. I'd call the general manager of each of those groups, and, and I usually get one of their admins or, 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 or handlers or whatever they're called. And I'd say, I want to come and talk to you guys about reliability and understand what you do. And I did assessments, essentially. So I didn't dissuade the idea that I was from corporate. Um, that seemed to open more doors for me. So I got in and got to talk to all these different groups. And But I learned very quickly that the ability to create a reliable product rests really solely on the culture of the organization. If if the thinking about reliability and the performance of your product in the long term, uh, including short term, you got to get rid of the uh, early life failures. Uh, if that's baked into the decision making across the company, you'll, you will succeed in creating a reliable product or reliable solution. And it didn't matter whether you did testing or not. It didn't matter whether you um, uh, had a reliability program or not, it, those didn't correlate to the results because we also had all the results. We had all the warranty numbers that we were able to match against these assessments. It was really focused on the culture and to, is reliability being balanced and traded off with other priorities like uh, time to market or cost or feature sets. And so that was enlightening. So telling that story in a couple of presentations at conferences and other places, um, University of Maryland asked me to do a capstone class for them in their graduate program for their master's and PhDs in reliability engineers. 
uh, Maryland does a great job of teaching people all the math and all the theory and uh, you know all that good stuff around reliability engineering and the tools that we use. But the, what they didn't do, and my course tries to fill that gap, is, well, how do you put this all together? How do you apply the right techniques at the right time to create value for the organization and the customer? And so the course uh, looks at here's a company in this particular situation. Here's their assessment notes. Now let's go create a reliability plan that does two things. One is helps them achieve a reliable product on a particular development program. And then second, it looks at the organization and what's the infrastructure that enables them to make good decisions concerning the reliability in context with everything else they got to think about. And so the, usually I teach it in the summers. I think we're coming up. It's uh, in, in uh, early June, their summer season uh, sessions start and vast majority of my students are remote. I've had Australians and folks from Europe and all over the world and, and, and all across the U S take the course and stay in touch with many of them. It's been a, it's a fun interactive course yet. It's a lot of work. I know that. I mean, it's very deliberate. So that was, and I've been teaching that course now, Rob, I think 15 years. And so it's, and they asked me back every year, which was great. And then um, the Ascendo stuff is, as I mentioned earlier, is really a, um, an outgrowth of, of being visible in the, in the community, doing papers and presentations and things like that, and then getting lots of questions and, and finding that there's a lot of value to answering questions. So somebody wants to know about a good book. Well, here's a list of three books that may help you learn this item that you're interested in. Here's the, you know, whatever. And what I find is that people that end up liking the answers or getting value out of those answers is actually useful for a quick response type question is they come back and ask you better questions in, in, some percentage of those come back and become clients. They become, they buy courses on Ascendo or they, they want me to do consulting or find, help them find somebody to come work for them or whatever. Um, so it's good all the way around. I find that uh, sharing what I know and helping others share what they know is rewarding in and of itself, but it also generates a lot of business. So it's, it's not bad at all. <laughs> so it, I think it comes down to a lot of what I do is in service of our community, of the engineering world that we, we work within. And if you can add value and help people make better decisions concerning reliability, then it's all good. Yeah, it just helps everyone be better and then they learn and contribute. So I, I just see it as a, it's, it's like, self-fulfilling kind of community, which is great. Now, now I guess, Fred, you know, something that you mentioned in there, like essentially like what you teach as far as I can tell the at University of Maryland is like you mentioned, that's the art of reliability. And, and I really, that's, that's a question I get a lot actually is people, they understand like, this is RCM, this is root cause analysis. This is preventive maintenance optimization. But the question they always seem to have is, well, I know all these techniques, but what am I supposed to do? 
one of the dangers in reliability engineering is if if you're not really sure what to do and you open up say uh, practical reliability engineering uh, by O'Connor and Kleiner, it lists hundreds of things you can do. And, and in some cases, it does a decent job of saying, well, this is what this tool is for and why you want to do it. You know, FMEA is great at prioritizing potential risk areas that you may want to investigate or, or, or address. Uh, here's some techniques for doing failure analysis. Uh, for example, here's different approaches and ways to go about doing that, and different tools and things to look for, different models and different so on. It, it goes on and on and on. The, the danger is, is that as a reliability engineer, you want to do all of this stuff. And, and to some extent, you really should gain experience doing all these different tools and techniques, if for no other reason to know what works and what doesn't work under specific circumstances. As you become more mature at it, or as you spend more time thinking through what exactly is this tool for, um, then you become adept at applying it at just the right time in the right method. Uh, the analogy is a toolbox, right? You, you pick up a hammer or a screwdriver depending on what task you have to accomplish. The same with reliability engineering. You do failure analysis or fault tree analysis or um, uh, uh, FMEA uh, as appropriate for the questions or challenge or task that you have in front of you. And the more you can apply them correctly, the more value you get. Um, rather than saying, oh, we're going to do these 15 different things no matter what, well, 14 of those things may have had little to no value at the end of the day. Let's do the one thing that adds the most value and then build on that. Um, so that's a lot of what I'm trying to teach. But it it underpins both at Maryland and on Ascendo is this concept that we're working in a world where people are trying to make decisions about the a vendor selection, for example. Do I pick this motor or that motor? Do I uh, do build in redundancy or not? Things like cost are immediate, right? We can look on the on the proposal and there's the cost figures right in front of us. And then they're going to give us some some numbers, we're going to usually ask, well, what's its reliability? What's its maintenance plan? What kind of spare parts do I need to hold? And some vendors do a great job with that and others don't. And it's not always their fault because they don't know how you're going to use that particular item. And so as a reliability engineer is in that context of making decisions, say, as an example, picking a, a piece of equipment for your factory is Part of our role is asking the right questions and helping our decision makers make a good decision more often than not. And it's always in balance, right? We can spend tons of money and get a very, very reliable, super redundant, uh, fault tolerant type system. But if it's really just to keep a, a blower fan going so that uh, we get fresh air circulating in the plant, in the in the plant, well, it's that may not be a critical use of those resources. So we can afford a less reliable fan uh, in system to make that happen. Because if it, the consequence of it failing isn't, isn't going to be life-threatening, for example. But it's always in context. And a lot of what we do has got to be in that realm of helping people make decisions.
No, I, yeah, I, I love that. And, and like, you know, as you know, I guess, well, as we're recording it, it was two weeks ago, but you know, when this is going to be out, it'll be probably, I don't know, five or six weeks. Anyways, I did recently put out a podcast about risk decision-making and certainty. And it's something that like, I, like I've come from kind of the world of economics. I've, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, my both my parents are economists, so. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. Yeah. So, and then I've I've also spent a lot of time uh, in gambling. Like I played poker for a f- for a number of years and did daily fantasy. And decision making is is like the core of those. I don't know if they're professions, but games, right? And a lot of people, at least in reliability at least on my end of the world in, in sort of the maintenance space, we spend a lot of time going, well, it's all about the equipment. It's all about, you know, the maintenance program. It's all about this kind of stuff. But really, like you're right, in my opinion, it's it's about making better decisions with the information that we have. That's right. And, and there is an article, um, I just saw it today, uh, this morning actually, from the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. And I don't remember the title offhand, but it was really about how much information do we use to make decisions? And and they were saying that it's actually a lot less than we think it is. Um, and so I, it's along this lines of how do we m- match the available information and in men, much in many regards, is is it sufficient for us to make a good decision? And good means that we don't have to reverse it later. We don't have the downside consequences of it later to to resolve. How can we minimize the downside uh, effects and get the right decision at the right time? So, if, for example, picking a, a vendor for a piece of equipment. If we get it wrong, we have all the sunk costs, we've lost time, we lose production, we it takes resources away from what we could be doing. If we can improve that from a 50-50 chance of getting it right to 70-30 chance of getting it right, um, that makes a huge difference in an organization, just in our equipment and our ability to do what we're trying to do. And so I'm very interested in in the reliability part of it, because we never have enough information, but there's a balance as to where is it good enough. And I think that's a lot of, I should look more into the economics and and the gaming industry is how people make decisions there, because it's related to how we make decisions, even though we think we're doing it data-based. We still have this underlying ability to make decisions when we're void of data. And so how do we get just enough? And I think more importantly is how do we know we have enough? How do we feel comfortable with the information we have and go from there? Yeah. I I mean, gaming, they take really interesting points on it. Now, if you look like really in depth on it, if you look up something like the Kelly criterion, which is essentially a formula for how big should you bet on something, it, it takes into account how much confidence you have in the result. Mm-hmm. So obviously the more confidence you have that the result's gonna be one way versus the other, the, the more you can bet. Okay. 
So that that's something. Now, now that's a formula and whatever. But if we're looking at it from kind of an anecdotal point of view, where maybe we can't quantify precisely what our you know like what one equipment is versus another, like really we should kind of take that sort of idea into place, right? So if we can look at you know what's the best possible scenario, what's the worst possible scenario. And maybe get a feel for what's likely. Those are some things that I typically like to just not necessarily quantify out, but even if I just have a feel for it, it can help you point you in the right direction. That's right. Um, <laughs> Me too, actually. I'll, I still like my wearable blocks, though. So, <laughs> you know, I found the best way to to make a statistician happy is give them a lot of data. Um, the the art of what we do in reliability is then, well, what's useful? What what can we use to make a difference? And I've seen that as a problem with some reliability engineers. And I'll blame the PhDs because they get heavily trained on doing the num- rolling the numbers and and looking at field data and analyzing it a dozen different ways. For example, you could spend full time and do nothing but data analysis in some organizations. Yet if it nobody looks at it, nobody makes a decision on it, nobody actually understands it, um, what's the point, right? So it's, and it's the same applies to all of our tools. It's when, when somebody asks me to create a test plan, for example, or they want to look at how do I, what's my optimization, uh, optimized maintenance schedule? Well, let's look at the data. Yet it's, it's only part of the picture. It's got to be in that larger context. And it, the first question is always, well, who's going to decide this? And what information do they need to actually make a good decision? What are they comfortable with? Because every different people require different amounts of information in order to feel comfortable, that, that sense that they got enough to do it. And that's, I think, is a tricky part and often overlooked. Um, we don't need to do a, a thesis for every decision and create that mountain of, of information. We need to create enough so that people can make a good decision. Yep. No, that's absolutely true. And something that people, you know, probably don't think about is your manager, they're not going to spend two weeks or a month reading your 200 page report. They want something concise yeah yeah because usually they have an mba <laughs> yeah they're only going to spend two, they listing. want the executive summary and they're only going to read the first paragraph <laughs> i always like to slag on mbas but that's another story for another day <laughs> so so i guess fred you know like we've talked a lot about the art of you know reliability now now how do you feel When someone asks you, like, in general, what should reliability engineers be doing? Like, how do you answer that question? I had a similar question just yesterday on, on, I think it was Quora, where somebody asked me to answer a question. What should a reliability engineer learn? Um, And they were in a particular field. What should they do? And my answer is, you should learn. Um, And you should continue to learn. Um, I think... I'd back up just a little bit. I think the number one thing you should do as a reliability engineer is add value. 
with every engagement, with every meeting, with every discussion is answer questions, answer it well enough so that they get it. Whether you're talking to a technician or the ops manager or a director of engineering, uh, a board member or a mechanical engineer is what do they need? What does the other person need? Not what you want to give them, but what do they need in order to move forward? So if somebody says, you know, we're, we're putting in this electronics in this environment, what are the risks that it'll survive in this area? Well, what, what's that environment? Let's think about that a little bit. The way electronics can fail is contamination and, and vibration and hot and cold cycles or a hot, humid environment. Uh, these are the kinds of things that can cause electronics to fail pretty well, pretty quickly. Although forklift tines going through the box is not a good thing either. Right? So let's what's the risk? What's the downside? How long does it take to repair or replace that? What happens if it does go down? So you and I could go all day about all the reliability things we could apply to answer that question. Well, what do they need? And if their question is really hinged on, well, what kind of enclosure do I need to put this in so that it's protected well enough and doesn't cost us too much? Okay, well, let's look at that environment, it's a uh, gets sprayed down. I actually was in a factory a few years ago, and they were using what looked like a fire hose to clean the equipment. It was just a, a food processing plant, and it was amazing how much water and how much pressure, and it was soapy water on top of that. And they're just spraying everything, all the sensors, all the electronics, all the control surfaces, everything was just getting hosed down. And I'm like, well, we probably need a box that will protect it from that moisture. <laughs> Let's let's get one that does that, and let's go figure that out. The electronics themselves are, you know, if it's generating a lot of heat, then how are we going to cool it? And if it's and so on, you got to think through from our knowledge as reliability professionals around what causes failures, for whether it's on a material set or on an ingredient or on an adhesive or the equipment itself or whatever. Use that knowledge to help other people frame what they need to know, to do what they need to make decisions on, what, what they need to work for. So the answer to the question is what we should be doing is influencing decisions. And a big part of our day-to-day -day work is learning, is, well, how do it, adhesives fail? How, how does electronics fail? How, how, how do all of these different things work and not work? And then there's the business side of it. So so what if this doesn't work? What happens to the business? What happens to our throughput? What happens to availability? What's the consequence of that? And hence, then we can assign a value to the risks that we're facing and the options that are available. And there's a third part, I think, is learning to deal with people. Reliability engineers don't work in a cubicle or an office all by themselves. You're, you're not really being very helpful or useful if you are. So it's being able to interact with technicians and operators on the floor, uh, engineers at all levels in all spans they have. And in some organizations, you're working with the C-level folks and the owner of the company to help them make big decisions like, do we add a second line or do we have add just redundancy to, to a piece of it? 
So the span of our ability to, to work with different people in the organization is you got to be able to communicate well, to pr make presentations well, to write well, to present yourself well, to be clear and succinct when you need to be and, and be an educator when you need to be and so on and know when to be in which role. So there's the technical skills we need to have, the background of, of dealing with all these different kinds of industry, uh, uh, fields of interest, mechanical engineering, software engineering, uh, plant operations, the product that we're actually creating and the customers involved with that and so on. And then all of the business elements also. We need to be conversant and well-educated in all of those spheres to be useful. So I find that you just never stop learning uh, as, as opportunities and, 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 and uh, uh, issues arise. It's just another opportunity to learn something and get better at it. The one thing, like people listening, it's in my experience, the technical learning is the easy part and the people communication part is the hard part. Well, I, I, I tend to think, and what my experience has been is that people like us are tend to be engineers or scientists first. And then we got into reliability engineering, into the engineering world, because we like well, I like to break things and I, <laughs> I, I like to think other reliability engineers like to break things also <laughs> and figure out why it broke and stuff like that. It's kind of what we do. It, it's not taught in schools. If you're taking engineering classes or science classes or even just the straight reliability engineering classes, and you've been to conferences, Rob, it's painful sometimes watching the skill level of how we make do presentations to each other, much less in a, a more pressured situation where you're working with your, your board of directors, for example. Yet to be successful at what we do, we have to be comfortable working with other people. We, we are not lone wolves. We have to work with the rest of the team, which includes a huge swath of the organization. So it's, underrated in our education background and our preferences to some extent for, and this is gross generalization, of course, is, but it's, it's an, usually an afterthought and it's something that us as an industry need to get better at is the ability to communicate better. No, no, absolutely. And it's something where like, you also have to look at who you're dealing with, right? Like, like for me specifically, like I'm an introvert, I'm good at math and science. I went into engineering because I'm good at math and science. And like, if you look at who you're dealing with throughout the organization, like the maintenance guy on the floor or the operator, they might be extroverted people. They also don't have the, like the rigorous mathematical and science training that I have. And then also, if you look at the other end, like when I was making fun of MBAs, right? Like those are, Again, it's a different type of person than the shop floor guy or an engineer as well. So very wide disciplined people. And you really have to speak the language that they are able to hear because they're not going to necessarily be able to understand the same stuff that you do. That's right. Just saying, oh, well, let's consider the reliability function. <laughs> you lose probably nine tenths of the audiences that we ever talk to. 
<laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it, I agree. And, and that's true of any industry, any discipline, right? Is you got to know your audience. And it's a skill that takes time and practice and deliberate practice to learn how to do. It's, it's bad enough trying to speak Weibull to even other reliability people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, it, 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 there's plenty to learn. So back to your question about what to do, it's, it's add value, right? Make sure that you're helping. And the big part of that is making sure that you're communicating in a way that helps them solve their problem, solve, make motion or for, get forward motion and what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, many times that's involving a decision. So how do we help them make the right decision? It's not the one that we think they should make. It's the one that they need to frame and balance with all the other priorities that they're facing. And then if we tie that all back to organizational goals, we have asset management. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it's it's in context to a larger picture, whether it's in the asset management world or in the product development world. It's it's in the end of the day, we want to make our customers happy. And our customers are the engineers and technicians we work with, the ops managers and directors level folks. And at the end of the day, it's the customers that are, that are purchasing whatever it is we're making or designing. And um, so it, it, it's got to you have to think it through and keep that larger context in mind. Now, sure, you got to put your head down and do some work on the math part, right? There's pieces and times when that's appropriate and that's the skill set we bring to the table or the failure analysis work or the optimization type planning or whatever it is that we're, we're, we have the unique skills to bring. Uh, but as you come out of that, it's got to be communicated such that other people can actually use it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I see a lot uh, that we miss out on is we spend a lot of the time talking about the nuts and bolts of the component we're looking at or the equipment we're looking at, but we're not looking at, you know, does this make the product better for the customer does it make your service better for the customer? Which at the end of the day, a happy customer is what we're out for, right? Perfect. So, so I guess, Fred, you know, one, the, our last question before we get you out of here is the more conferences I go to, the more technology I see pop up with, you know, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality. Even this morning, I talked to, to Tim about blockchain too. So, where do you see the future of reliability going, let's say in the next you know, two to five years? Well, that's a broad question and you framed it in the artificial intelligence. There's a, an article I saw a couple of days ago, um, just scanned it, that there were somebody did a study of companies claiming to be creating products in artificial intelligence. Um, it's a buzzword. It's sort of like fat-free lettuce was on the shelves a couple of years ago. It's, it's a buzzword. And when they dug into it, they found that only about half the companies actually did anything that had anything to do with what we would call artificial intelligence, you know, doing neural network analysis or, uh, or machine learning type things. So you have to be one, be careful about it. 
Uh, one thing I am looking forward to, and I see the application for, is this augmented reality where you have the basically a computer screen in the field when you're looking at a piece of equipment. So if I walk up to, a, uh, and I actually did this with the, uh, when I was working with one of my clients, we were looking at some equipment at, on escalators and elevators and their procurement department did them no good, but because they always bought the lowest bidder. And so they had seven different companies of escalator equipment in their fleet. And they had uh, all every different model you can think of. So you can think that ripples into training and supply chain and, and spare parts and oh. It just went on and on and on. It was horrible. Um, but when you walked up to a piece of equipment, it's this big motor and there's a chain and, and, and the escalator gearbox and all the other things were relatively common, yet every one of them was different. Out of the 150 they had, I think one model they had six of. <laughs> it was, <you> know, <laughs> it was, and so the... Yeah, so the technician would walk up to it, and they we were they were rolling out. Um, originally, they would have binders, or they aligned their technicians to particular models and had to move them to just that. They had a, a scheduling nightmare of getting the right guy that knew that equipment to the right piece of equipment. Um, so they were going to using like iPads that had all the manuals on it, so these guys could look up questions and look at the schematics and look at whatever they needed on a much more portable than a stack of binders back in the office. Uh, the augmented reality piece is that you walk up to it, scan the, the data plate, and it gives you everything you need to know about it. But I think the ad advantage to that is that when it's a troubleshooting piece, the, the knowledge of our workforce is retiring. It's a piece I picked up at the SMRP conference last year, and I think it's been a well-known uh, issue facing the industry, but that's a lot of knowledge walking out of the door. And so capturing that information and, and cataloging it and, and building it into these um, artificial intelligent devices so that if I'm called out to a job and it's, Hey, escalator's not working. What do I look at first? How do I diagnose this? What are the symptoms? And if I can What's the, the IBM computer, uh, Watson, is being used to do medical diagnosis and a variety of different situations. And it's actually better than uh, well-trained expert medical doctors in, in many regards and all these different tests they're doing with it. Well, let's apply that to maintenance, right? If we come up to a piece of equipment and I've got these five symptoms, let's feed that into the system and it gives us then, well, here's... I need more information, check this, this, and this, or here's the likely sources. Here's how you know whether it is or not. It can speed up our diagnosis of what we need to do to fix something. And it has the double side of helping to sensitize our maintenance teams at getting better at doing diagnosis. Now, the downside is that, that we rely on it. So when the network's down, then we can't do maintenance. That would be a shame. So I think there's opportunity there, uh, but I think there's a downside also. Um, in other aspects, I think we're going to be moving towards more smarter use of the information we have available, um, not just on diagnosing uh, downtime or, or problems on a piece of equipment, but in 
in selecting equipment and designing equipment and so on. I think those parts, we, we as an industry are need to, and I think we're starting to see signs that we are getting better at asking the right questions. So we're, we're fighting back to those MBAs that are looking at, we'll just get the cheapest one. <laughs> well, it's not my problem if it breaks later. That's a maintenance problem, right? We we need to think more holistically about a lot of these things. And I, and it's not just cost. There's not just time to market. We need to think through the, the total cost of ownership. And it, there's more and more evidence that that's coming to be more and more fruitful um, or used more often in organizations, I should say. Yeah, and it, it has to be like, obviously purchase price is is not even half of the equation. It's a, a tiny portion of what you're going to spend on the equipment over its life. So it's something that people really need to consider, not only just maintenance costs and operational costs, but also stuff like safety costs and environmental costs. So those are other things that you need to consider as part of that whole life cycle cost analysis. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So Freddie, you know, We'll have to have you back on because I want to dig into Weibull math and mean mean time to repair and mean be- time between failures and all the stats. But I had fun with this one. All right, good. Yeah, me too. It was enjoyable, and yeah, we we stayed away from the MPBF <laughs> stuff. That that would definitely be worth another whole episode. <laughs> I would be glad to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's something that. Um, you know, that was probably what I first stumbled across when I, when I learned about you and we didn't even get a chance to talk on it. We talked more about art. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's all good. It's all important. So got to leave something out there for us to talk about again. <laughs> so before we sign off here, you know, do you have anything to plug? Like obviously everyone should head out over to ascendoreliability.com, but are you going to be at any conferences? Are you doing any webinars coming up? Well, I've got webinars coming up. Um, I drawn a complete blank of what I've got in April and beyond. I don't. It's always fluid. It really, to a large extent, is driven by my audience of what they're interested in. So it's uh, taking a look at questions and feedback and so on that I get, whether through LinkedIn or through the Ascendo site. So to plug, it would be get on the Ascendo site and poke around a bit there. Uh, we're actively working on improving the site because we've got close to 1500 articles. Um, I think we've got close to a thousand, maybe 1500 podcast episodes. Um, And that's just scratching the surface of the content that's there. So we're working very hard right now on making it easier to find the information on the site. And it's, it's, you can use Google to find this particular article you want that that's working. And a lot of our traffic comes from, from Google searches, but the, it's for those folks that don't know what they're looking for or don't know the terminology. It's for the folks that are looking to, to systematically get better at what, better at what they're doing as a reliability professional. We're trying to organize the site and the material in the site so that you get like these learning tracks is, is one theory that we're working on trying to implement. And at this point, we're looking for feedback. We're looking for info on what you need, what you're looking for, what kinds of information would be of most use to you short-term and 
career-wise? What what do you need going forward so that you can be better at what you're doing? And I know that's a tall order to ask people in general, but that's the kind of thing we're structuring, trying to structure the site to help us help everybody in our industry get better at. Um, so it's ascendoreliability.com, A-C-C-E-N-D-O, and I'm, I'm sure, Rob, you'll probably put a link into this to it, but there's about pages, there's comments fields on just about every piece of content that's out there. We, we, we look at and respond to and get people answers as quick as we can, uh, often within a day. And we're always looking for ideas and suggestions and that forms the basis for what we talk about in podcasts and what we write about and what kind of courses we're putting together. So Anything you got for us of what would help you, we're all ears. We'd be very interested in that. Uh, yeah, that's that's great. And, and like for people listening, if you um, obviously Ascendo Reliability, there'll be a link in the podcast notes. There'll also be a link to connect with Fred on LinkedIn. So Fred's on there all the time. So if you have any specific feedback and you want to give it to Fred, you know, feel free to shoot him a message on LinkedIn as well. Yep. Yep. That'd be very welcome. Thanks. Yep. Absolutely. You know, Freddie, you know, thanks for coming on. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for the invite, Rob. It's always a pleasure. And I've enjoyed your show and, and its growth. I really like the, <laughs> the um, and now I'm curious of what quotes you're going to pull out and, and for your promotional pieces. <laughs> I wonder what I've said or not said. <laughs> so I'm very curious of how that works. But uh, no, I wish you success with the show. And no, it's hey, you're having fun with it. it I, it's obvious. So I, I appreciate being a member of your your guest list. That's that's an honor. No, I, I appreciate you hosting the show, and I appreciate you coming on. And, and yeah, I'm sure we'll find we'll find some good quotes from this one for sure. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Have a great day.